You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week before we get started with this week's episode, which is the other half of the Pandway Podcast. You may remember from previous episode, we did one half of the Pandway Podcast. We'll get to the other member of that podcast coming up here in just a few moments. But before we get started, just a huge, huge thank you to our listener and fan, Robert, for a very generous donation. We cannot thank you enough, folks. As We've told you repeatedly, uh, this isn't like a business for us. We don't make a, uh, any money off this thing. We, Whatever money we do make, we try to donate back to veterans' charities. So uh, when people donate to us, that helps us offset the costs for our production, our soundboard upgrades, everything that we're doing with Kill Cliff on our YouTube channel, all that stuff helps us out. So we can't thank Robert enough for his generous donation. Go to our website if you'd like to offer up a donation to us as well. We certainly appreciate it and are very grateful for you doing so. So thank you, Robert. Again, our social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Follow us there as well. And that links as well to our website, hazardground.com, which of course reminds you about our Amazon promotion on our website. You can click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the sponsors tab. Do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend. And then we donate that percentage back to some of the charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. Also works from your smartphone. Uh, and it'll redirect you right to the Amazon app. So it's really convenient. All your credit card information is saved. So simple and an easy way to help out veterans across America just by going to hazardground.com. Don't forget about our Apple reviews. We've been reminding you guys we need to see more of them. Please, please, please tell a friend who loves the show as well to go to Apple. Leave us a review. You can also do that from your smartphone. Super quick, super simple. doesn't have to be a lengthy review. Just something. Giving us five stars, letting us know why you love the show. And who knows, maybe your review will be featured on our social media sites as well. So again, we certainly appreciate all the help from everybody. But this week's guest, former Army Specialist, who spent four and a half years in the military and had two deployments, one to Iraq, one to Afghanistan. And the one to Afghanistan... In the Panjway province is what led him to join our former guest, Curtis Grace, and forming the Panjway podcast. And he is Luke Coffey joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Luke, welcome, man. And thank you so much for being here. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. All right. Uh, excited to talk to the other half. And again, uh, you know, as we've said, nothing is really proprietary in the veteran space. We have no problem having on other podcasters. Uh, your podcast is amazing. You're telling some amazing stories. Uh, partly jealous about some of the stories you've been able to tell because some of them are pretty <laughs> impressive, uh, to say the least. But it's great that we get sort of cross-pollinate here uh, and have both you and Curtis on as the, the Pandway podcast team. So, again, thank you. Yeah, I mean, we appreciate you carving out the space for having an episode for both of us. We feel lucky. Absolutely. All right, start back at the beginning and tell us how and why you got in the Army. Uh, so, you know, joining the Army was always just kind of a lifelong ambition for me. I mean, I was definitely that kid. I grew up on a farm in Kentucky, so surrounded by an agrarian community. So I was out throwing walnuts in the ditch lines, pretending they were grenades. <laughs> and, you know, the hay bales were my trench lines, you know, just playing Army. And uh, it was just always ingrained into something I wanted to do. And then I uh, went to college for a year, and the classic story fucked that up. Oh, this is a cussing podcast. I That's know. okay. Yeah, you're good. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I went to college for a year, fucked that up, and then I, I flunked out horribly. And that's when that kind of childhood ambition, that teenage year ambition came back. And so I walked into the, uh, the recruiter's office and signed up to be an infantryman because that was the job that I wanted to do. If you're going to be in the Army, be in, in the infantry, you know, that's, that was kind of my mentality about it because when you're a right. kid playing Army, you're playing infantry. Yeah, no, no one's ever playing logistics, um, which is <laughs> yeah. where I ended up, but go figure. Anyway, um, so nobody trying to talk you out, being the fact that we were a nation in two wars and uh, Iraq and Afghanistan both raging at the time? You know, I mean, I think I was in the seventh grade when 9-11 happened. So my entire mantra of joining the military was pretty much ingrained into my family. Um, like I said, I took that little divergence much to their relief and then i went to the recruiter signed the papers and i came in i was like yep joining the army uh <laughs> so how'd that I conversation that go it was one of those things where i think i knew better to cut that conversation off at the head before it began <laughs> so i signed my papers and then told him i was going in uh for a kid who played army a lot was basic training a struggle for you any surprises there uh yeah it was i mean honestly i had a drill sergeant who framed it well he said is to get two gut checks when you're in the army but your infantry school and uh, your first deployment and so uh, my first deployment was 
a little bit softer than most of it, but that's a different story. But um, basic training was kind of a gut check for me. I mean, I was young. I was just a freshly minted 19-year-old kid. Uh, grew up, you know, kind of in a bubble a little bit. And so to have that bubble completely shattered by some, you know, backwater Louisiana drill sergeant just getting in your face was a little bit jarring. It took me some time to really adjust to to being in and that kind of mentality in that world. But once I once I got into it and kind of hit, hit my strides, it was a piece of cake. Where did you end up after basic training in uh, in, in Fort Benning and in infantry school? So I uh, got orders to go to Fort Stewart. Uh, funnily enough, I joined hoping to go to Fort Campbell. So I had an airborne contract. Ah. And, uh, which I gave up because <laughs> about halfway through basic training, I realized I didn't want to be in trade hawk any longer. And so when they asked people to give up their, their contracts to get there as quick as possible, I gave mine up. Ironically, I did that so I could go to Fort Campbell, hoping to be in Kentucky where I'm from. Ended up going to Fort Stewart while the majority of the company went to Fort Campbell. Unbeknownst to me, you didn't have to have airborne to go there. So I was in Fort Stewart and I got sent to Bravo Company 164 and 2nd Brigade. And that's where I spent my entire four and a half years in the same platoon. Rock of the morn, baby. Yeah, the big the big uh, blue and white striped weenie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, I, I've, as a Georgia Guardsman now, I spent enough time at Fort Stewart to uh, – to, to live the life of a third ID uh, individual. So it, it, look, it, all things considered, it's not a terrible place to go. I mean, yeah, the heat sucks in the summer and there's bugs and mosquitoes in the training. So, I mean, I get why people hate going there for three years, but all things considered, you didn't obviously spend much time there as you deployed twice in a four-year span. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think I spent between between training, like going to NTC and, and basic training in my deployments, I think I spent half of my career gone and the other half was at Fort Stewart, but I was hot for four and a half years. I never could escape the heat. Yeah, that is true. Between Fort Stewart and, and the Middle East, there wasn't much respite from the heat. Um, yeah. So how long are you, you in it before you deploy in, in what, 2009? Yeah, we deployed in October 2009. I got there in March of 2009. So I actually joined the Army. Um, I shipped to basic training on election day of 2008. So I cast my boat, got in the I got cast my vote, got in the van, and uh, you know, about a year later, we deployed. I'd been in the unit maybe eight nine months. I mean, that's a quick turnaround, all things considered. Yeah, and I was at the very tail end of that time when they had those locked in deployment schedules. Right. Uh, so we, I knew as soon as I got to the unit, we knew we were going to Iraq. Uh, we knew we were going to Mosul in the northern Iraq. Um, we had our mission set. And we even got briefed months ahead of time at NTC. We were told like, hey, sorry, guys, you're probably not going to get your CIBs. You're probably not going to see any combat. Uh, you know, it's it's really quite low key right now. I mean, this is in late 2009, 2010 when the withdrawal was happening, uh, when Iraq was at that time fairly stable. Yeah. Um, I was there for the closeout in all 2011. So, uh, what were you doing up in Mosul? So we just ran in your typical infantry operations, not a lot of high speed kinetic stuff like raids right. or anything like that. It was almost all, um, anti- ID counter ID operations. So we spent a lot of nights sitting in the desert, looking through FLIR on route Tampa. Um, so that in combination with just kind of checkpointing, we set up and established checkpoints, pulled a lot of guard, just did presence, presence patrols, you know, nothing too crazy. The op tempo was pretty maddening. It was as heavy as it was in Afghanistan, but we just weren't getting in the thick of it, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I wonder, was there a part of you who's sitting there in Mosul looking at the situation going, this isn't what I signed up for. This kind of sucks. Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, that was, um, that was kind of a crestfallen moment for some of the, the naive, you know, E4s and, the, and below who were being told you're going to go, but you're probably not going to get your CIB. I didn't earn my CIB in, uh, in Iraq. We did, sadly, we lost a couple of guys to an IED in the, in the company, um, Lieutenant Robert Collins and specialist Anthony Blunt. But that was such a, unbeknownst thing at that time that it was kind of a free, almost a it was almost like a freak accident I mean, obviously it was an intentional act on the enemy's behalf but you know but as far as combat was concerned i think there was one firefight in the entire brigade so yeah I, I, we were all a little bummed out that we weren't able to get into the shit um so you know i got i, I got mine <laughs> i got I mean, what was coming to me <laughs> is it demoralized were you one of those guys who was hard up for the cib was that something that you know i mean i, yeah. I know every infantryman is but some guys take it in stride a little bit better. They're like, it is what it is. You know, I mean, some people aren't, aren't hammered on awards and focused on badges and everything else. And some people are. Well, I think, and this is something that Curtis and I have discussed a little bit on the podcast. It's like the CIB versus say a cab or another citation. Like I could give a shit about any of the other awards that the army's given me. 
um, you know, either I feel like I haven't didn't deserve them or they were just kind of giving out candy to make everybody feel a little better. But the CIB is kind of that coveted token of your infantry experience. You know, it's the pinnacle. So you're naked not, without it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's not it's not a an arbitrary side aspect of your job. It is the job. So yeah, it's, it's to not get it or to. I was definitely kind of hard charged for it. Um, by the end of my deployment, I had pretty much accepted that uh, the Iraq deployment. And this, this was a twelve month deployment. The very tail end of the twelve monthers. Um, I had pretty much accepted that I wasn't going to get that. And I kind of gotten over it, um, you know, and I had decided I was not going to stay in the military. So I knew I would be getting out. And so I just basically just kind of slid into that mentality of just getting my time knocked out so I could get out and go back to school. Wait a second. So you knew at that deployment, you weren't going to stay in the military that, like, was it because of the deployment was boring or you had other plans? I mean, what was the mindset? Um, I was, so I can tell you, it was kind of a, a series of minor epiphanies. Uh, but one of the major epiphanies that kind of capstoned it all was sitting in a guard tower in August, 120 degrees, just outside of Missoula, a little checkpoint. Living conditions were terrible. Watching people go about their daily lives. And I just like, yeah, I had that moment of like, okay, th- I'm not going to do this the rest of my life. Because it was just that in combination with the other um, complexities of being in the infantry and being in the military was something that I just mentally and i was also young you know i I don't think i had enough life experience in my belt like all jobs have their shitty parts um but i'm glad that you know i made that decision because it's led to you know a really fruitful life for me but um yeah i I think i just i just realized i didn't want to be here i didn't want to do it um and so i just kind of knuckled down and knocked my time out was this a sort of depressing revelation for a kid who played infantry and played army his entire childhood existence that that oh yeah it didn't yeah. live up to the billing that you had thought <laughs> i mean for the kid and me who wanted to go out and play army you think playing you know infantry sounds awesome you go out and play army in the woods and you shoot guns stuff like that my joke is that the army takes the fun out of a shooting machine gun i remember my first machine gun range when i got to the unit and it was like by the time I actually got down behind the weapon and started pulling the trigger, I was just like, yeah, this kind of sucks because they've taken all the fun out of it. Cause you got, you're being babysat, you're being mm-hmm. frog marched through these steps, you're being treated like an idiot. Um, and so, Up and if down I had range. found, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you had, you had a, how many cadre you had, you couldn't even pull the trigger without somebody wiping your ass and telling you it was okay to do so. Um, so that was just kind of a disheartening real a reality of the military and it's never what anybody expects i mean that's that's a mantra right it's not what you expect it to be yeah well you know again i was in the uh on the tail end of the be all you can be days and uh Mm. initially the experience didn't allow me to be anything um so (laughs) uh, my my career took a a divergent turn much like yours did but that all aside so you finish that deployment and you get back um and then how quickly are you getting you turned around for afghanistan so it was long haul uh, at that time, you know, when everybody was going every year. Um, it was 18 months before we went to Afghanistan. So we got back in October of 2010, and we went to Afghanistan in in March of 2012. So it was a good long stretch of time, and it was just business as usual. Uh, gunnery tables, train-ups, Bradleys, tanks, you know, nothing. We There was rumor mills, of course, churning about Afghanistan, but everybody dismissed them until the few weeks leading up to when we got rumors, when the, when the validity of those rumors became a little bit more apparent to us. Now, wait a second. So you had signed, how long was your initial contract that you signed? Four years? Four years and five months. Okay. So if you entered in 08 and you're deploying in 12, you're like, you know, right at the end here, were you, were you like, Hey, I'm yeah. getting out. I don't want to go. Or they said, no, you're going to go to the deployment. How did that <laughs> whole thing transpire? So um, this actually speaks to the, the, inability of garrison the military to maintain morale they they come down i had a year left on my on my contract when we deployed and they're like you're going to afghanistan it's gonna be crazy and we're like yeah let's go you know? <laughs> let's get out of fort stewart for the year uh so yeah i think most of it i was just kind of glad to, at that point i mean in retrospect hindsight's 2020 right but i was glad to catch the deployment i was glad to have that that we were gonna get that experience um but I was just glad to get to do my job instead of having to slog it out for another year. But it was definitely in my mind, like, damn, man, I got a year left and I'm about to go into some thick stuff. And so, I mean, now we, we were there for nine months. And I think from the last time I pulled the trigger in anger to the day I got out of the army, it was about 60 days. Really? So, wow. Yeah. That's so it was a quick, again, quick, quick another, turnaround. Another quick turnaround for you. All right. So when you hear you're going to Afghanistan, you're going to be in the ship. Where exactly is this? Uh, so we got word... Like I said, the rumor mill started turning really heavily in the fall. 
uh, it, it went from being like, we're going to like, Hey, the, the S3 at brigade said we're going. And so we finally got official orders to go uh, in November, right before Thanksgiving. And so uh, we went to Thanksgiving, came back, started doing switching gears. I and mean, we were literally in the middle of shooting our last table at gunnery. So we went from like full blown mechanized infantry to switching gears to light infantry. We had change of command, our, our company commander, uh, Brian Kitching, who Curtis talked about, he came on and, uh, you know, we were just gearing up for this deployment and it was, um, you know, it was, it was very quick, very rapid change of mentality and pace, but we, uh, uh sorry, last train of thought, but we were, we were ready to roll, you know, A- any fears going into it, any sort of apprehension or is it one of that kind of excited apprehension that, uh, you know, Hey, I'm going to get my CIB kind of apprehension. <laughs> so I don't think any of us really knew what to expect uh, until we got to NTC. So we went to NTC in February. So it'd been about a month before we deployed. And this is when we found out that our company was being detached from our mother battalion who had basically just pulled cop security and fob security at CAF. Uh, and we got sent out to Panjway and attached to one, two, three infantry. And um, when we knew that was going to happen, our platoon sergeant set us down and he had this look on his face, this kind of like somber, really. And he's like one of these dudes, he's rock solid, consistent, always at that level of just being the little platoon sergeant, you know, and he has this look on his face of just dread and he's sitting there and he's telling us what we're about to step into. He's talking about the IDs, how they're taking contact every, almost every day. Um, and he told us like, we're going to lose guys and we're going to have guys get wounded. And that was a very, the moment with a lot of gravitas for the platoon because we all just kind of had this, Oh shit, it's about to get real. And I think the platoon saw a real shift in mentality at that point. It went from being like, we're going to Afghanistan to we're, we're going to get in there and like, we're going to have to we're gonna have to fight and get our job done. And, you know, none of us had any, a lot of frame of reference for that. I mean, there was like two or three guys in the entire platoon that had their CIB. So. All right. So when do you land in Afghanistan? So it was uh, about the third week of March, I actually turned 23 on the plane to Afghanistan. So it was <laughs> right around my birthday. That's the easy one to remember. Um, so we got there, we went to go to Kyrgyzstan and Manas, like a week of spin up last minute gear, you know, getting play carries and that kind of thing. And I think we got to the actual cop at the very end of March. Are you uh, walking into this kind of thinking? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, obviously your antenna is up, but is it the whole we're not in Kansas anymore kind of deal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, we had that, you know, we, we jokingly call it our come to Jesus moment at NTC we had that moment where it was kind of that slap of reality. And, um, you know, I was so laser focused on getting out that I knew I was going to go back to school. I had my goals set in place. I had my timelines and we knew it was going to be thick and bushy. And when I went into it, I I kind of created this mentality for myself. Like, this is not going to define me. You know, I'm going to go there. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to get it knocked out. And then I'm going to get out of the military. I said, it's not going to define me. I'm not going to be the guy wearing the t-shirt going on podcast. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, I just had this really entrenched mentality of it not being the thing that defines my life. And so going into it with that mentality helped me, helped me kind of get into the rhythm of being there. Uh, I think it was a little bit more readiness, mental readiness. Day-to-day operations as you initially uh, land there in the Panjway district, what is it like? So we ripped out pretty quick with the unit that we replaced. Um, they had more or less stopped patrolling really far out from the base, or they had only gone to a couple areas. Um, I think they they got into some bad shit, and they'd only been there a few months because the unit before them had gotten so fucked up that they had to replace them. And, uh, you know, they were, you know, I don't want to talk too much shit about them, but they were a little timid in their patrolling. So we just did rip patrols with them, and we basically just did big half moon, half moon loops out of the base and just big circles. And so it was that day-to-day grind, but we, we weren't really seeing contact. I mean, I think they, at one, there's one day we started getting ICOM chatter that they were trying to push on us. So we, it was still a little bit before we started getting into, into firefights. We'd only been there, you know, we had to be there for two or three weeks before we started getting into firefights. So, but it was just the grind, man, the grunt grind, you know, just getting boots on the ground and walking around. Your first firefight. How well do you remember it? Uh, vividly because uh, at the time, because I didn't have a frame of reference, I didn't realize how bushy and thick it was. It was a pretty gnarly one. Um, I was actually out in the open. We uh, we were big long formation because we always had to walk in files because of the IEDs, which completely limited our movement. And so I was caught in the open between two points of cover. And I remember having this intrinsic gut thought, you know, it's like I'm going to pop a squat. 
And I popped a squat. And as soon as I did, PKM opened up and started ripping on us. And so I started hauling ass because I wanted to get behind some cover to the front. Um, yeah, I pivoted and about 70 meters to, to my, uh, two o'clock, I, I could see the, the distinctive V of muzzle pressure on a wall. So I just put, you know, my scope on that, my ACOG on that, started squeezing trigger, probably dumped a mag. Um, and then right around that time, we started getting hit from two other directions. Two guys hopped out into an alleyway and started shooting directly at us. So bullets were snapping on the walls and the dust was cooking up and you're getting that distinctive crack. And, um, you know, they were opening up on us. The, the Navy dog handler was off to my right and he was in the prone with his M4 underneath his armpit, just squeezing trigger going, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, trying to push the cover. And so we suppressed them and then some dudes topped out on a building and uh, we ended up putting them down or one of those dudes down and uh, that kind of simmered it down. But it was a, it was a bad one. There was probably four or five dudes and it was real thick, a lot of fire. And it was, you know, lasted a decent amount of time. I mean, for Afghanistan and in, in the South, which is say like two or three minutes, you know, it's not like the mountains where guys were battling all day or anything. So when you look back on that experience, um, you kind of, you know, broke your cherry. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, how much of, of that experience prepared you for the rest of the deployment? Um, you know, I think, at first it was kind of exciting, you know, like it finally happened. we got the, and it's just a little self aggrandizing, but I was proud of how I handled myself because I, you know, I got my rounds on target. I squeezed the trigger. I didn't hesitate. Um, you know, I, I was glad to see that I could, I held up to that initial experience. Now, obviously you do that over and over and over again. And that attrition and mental grind becomes a little bit more, uh, a little bit more steadfast in your mind, but yeah, it was, um, it was cool to to get to do that, but the excitement waned pretty quickly. By the time, I mean, even on the way out, we got hit one more time. And then the next firefight, and the next, by that second or third firefight, I was like, okay, this kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess in, in the whole concept of, you know, hey, you get the CIB out of the way early, um, but mm-hmm. there's also the, the somber reality that, you know, there's plenty more of these to come. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, after, after that initial, and we were the first platoon in the company to get hit. So we came back from the base and everybody was like, Ooh, what was it like? And things like that. And then the, the following two or three weeks, everybody started getting hit. And then we launched a, a huge battalion wide clearing operation out in the horn where we just pushed through the horn of Panjway with a bunch of other companies and cleared it out in the middle day as a six day operation. In the middle day of that, um, we lost our first guy, our first KIA, Sean Brazos, who was a Navy dog handler. The first Navy dog handler to actually be killed in combat. And, um, how does know, that go down? Uh, so I was actually to the South. So we, our, our unit was split up into three chunks. The third platoon was kind of the main drive up to the North. And then to the South was our platoon. And then to the Southmost point down in the river Valley, uh, was our headquarters platoon in the trucks. And so it was one of those things in Panjway where it's, and this is generally a rule of thumb in Kandahar, especially down towards the, the, the Western side of Kandahar. It's real thick. It's really close. You know, it's not, it's not four or 500 meter engagements. You're talking 200 meters or under, uh, sometimes as close as 15 or 20 feet away. And so somebody who's a hundred meters to the North is having a completely different experience than what you're having to, you know, hundred meters to the South. So we're down there scopes out looking for people and third platoon is getting in the thick of it. So third platoon is where Sean got hit. Um, and we were just kind of sitting there watching all this unfold, this drama with the Kyle was coming in and stuff like that. So I don't really have a lot, but we, we've covered it in the podcast, a couple of episodes of guys that were actually in that fight and they brought a lot to a lot to light. That was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, it doesn't necessarily hit home maybe personally for you because you weren't, you know, within range of, of everything happening. But clearly conversations after that had to have centered around the reality of what had just happened. Yeah. And that was probably one of the first times the third platoon had gotten into a really thick firefight. They had they'd had their their first firefight at that point, but that was the first like all out drawn out fight that they, had, you know, just a knuckle dragon fight. Um, and I think the, the shift definitely happened in the following few weeks, we started losing guys left and right. And so, um, the big wake up for me was when the engineers got hit, I was on the ground when they got hit and that was our first IED strike. Uh, up to that point, we'd always either found IEDs and bipped them or the truck hit a couple small ones. 
But yeah, that was definitely the wake up for us too. And that's what really shaped our fight more than anything. And in Panjway with like firefights were manageable. You know, you have the illusion of control over the chaos. I can get behind cover. I can surprise, uh, I can provide suppressing fire. I can get the Gustav online. But the IEDs, when they started, we started hitting those things, man, that completely destroyed a lot of the fighting spirit in the guys. And it became a fight of survival and not necessarily this, this grandiose war. What was the first one like hitting that first IED? So the first IED strike that I was witness to um, was when our engineers got hit. Um, we were actually, my, my element, my squad was pushing down to link up with the rest of our platoon to bring them back into a patrol base. It's about a three-day operation. And uh, we, I was about 20, 25 meters away. Um, and they had stepped across a bridge to investigate a, another a secondary suspected IED. And there was a second one in there that they didn't pick up on. And unfortunately, one of them stepped on it and uh, blew Trevor uh, into a shit trench. And then Lily, he um, he kind of got blown off the side of the road. And I was running the stall at that point. So I just kind of, I was on my way down to start rendering aid. And my team leader wisely so said, hey, dude, like, stay here, pull security. Of course, me pulling security was sitting there watching this this drama unfold, you know. And so um, I saw him pull, you know, the guys out and start treating them. And it was just, um, you know, you could you could tell it was bad. You know, uh, you, you, the nature of the wounds and the nature of the body language, um, of Pinnock, especially of Trevor Pinnock, it's, um, it was the only, the only phrase that I can ever land on to describe it is you can read death on a person. Um, and I could read death on him and it was, that what was stood out. Like, what, what do you mean when you say read death? There's just something about the body language. There's something about the the spirit and I'm starting to wane. You know, you can see, you can see the the drive to fight start to subside and to start to give way. And um, he stayed alive for a while. And he, he, you know, I think they even got him back to calf. But it was hard. It's a, it's a hard thing to really describe. It's almost ineffable. But you know, you can you can just see it in body language. You can see it in you know their facial expressions. Is there any part of you at this point in time that's like I'm so close to the finish line? I'm getting out. I got to get the hell out of here. Yeah, man. I mean, that was, that was always in my mind. Um, I think honestly, the, the best, the best thing for me, ironically, was getting out as soon as I got, got back. Cause I think it, mentally, if I had had to come back and still deal with stupid army shit for another, you know, 18 months after I got back or something, I think the, the will to drive to get it done and get the job done would have been decreased significantly. Um, it was always on my mind, you know, but uh, I was, it's so strange. I can't really explain it, but I always, from the very beginning, I had this weird instinctual pit in my stomach feeling that I would be fine. I just always knew in the back of my mind I was going to make it. Did you Did you ever, did your behavior ever change or decisions like, uh, hey, I'm not walking that way or, you know, I mean, were you extra cautious about things or that never entered your mind? Um, I mean, I was definitely cautious in that I understood the limitations of control that I could you know, implement on a situation. So if I could, if I could drop a knee and get behind the wall, I was going to do that. I wasn't going to be the guy standing out in the open because that was another, another thing about the nature of our fight. They always got the drop on us because they had freedom of maneuverability. They had a lot of good concealment with the thick vegetation of like the poppy and marijuana and the, and the grape fields and the orchards and everything. So they always got the drop on us. We never got the drop on them. And so I was like, um, we knew if I was coming instead of sitting out there with my head up, I would usually just kind of bunker down, get behind my optics, scan, and see what's out there. And then when shit would kick off, I'd at least be kind of mentally prepared and ready for it. Well, even though you're out there looking for them, you really couldn't do anything until they shot first anyway, right? No. I mean, yeah, we would see guys spotting us all the time. I mean, there's been more than enough times that I've had my my rifle on a dude who's obviously spotting. You know, it's like a military-age male up on a grape hut looking out. You know, maybe he broke out of a... a uh, um, a radio or something, but then we we had to get permission to engage spotters. So, right. you know, but when you know, it's coming and it's aggravating to not be able to, to drop the hammer on somebody's up to no good, but you know, you just, you, you can feel a change in the air, man. It gets staticky, gets wiry when the, when the, when the violence is about to get turned on. Yeah. Uh, w- w- were there any other 
um, you know, ticks or incidents that sort of stay with you uh, as sort of seminal moments of this whole thing? Yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, there's, and this is one thing that was kind of mind blowing, especially as we've done the podcast and it's made this uh, talking about these kinds of things a lot more easier for me. I mean, I was always the guy tight lift. I mean, when I went back to school, I go whole semesters and people didn't even know I was a veteran because I wanted, like I said, I didn't want it to define me. So, uh, I was never willing to openly uh, share these kinds of things, but that's been the challenge of doing this stuff. Um, but yeah, I think one of the natures of the deployment is like everybody had so many close calls. I mean, everybody's got a story and not just one, but like multiple. And so I've had a few, I mean, you have the, the classics, you know, the zip of the bullet over the, over your head or the smack of one on the wall. Um, you know, a couple, the one that really stands out to me the most was a very, very close ambush. Um, they were, I was completely exposed. My six was completely exposed. I was up on a wall pulling security for another unit. And we didn't know that these guys were maneuvering around behind us. And a dude got a PK up on a, a PKM up on a wall about, um, probably about 15 meters away. And he just unleashed an entire belt on me. And I don't know how I survived it. I spun dropped to the prone and I just started lands gunning on him too. I could see that dust kicking up. I mean, it was, and there was bullets cracking and branches from the trees were falling on top of me and the leaves were, were just going everywhere and the ground was getting chewed up. And one round actually hit so close to my face that it sprayed dirt up into my face. And even like I had my fear, I was actually on the saw again and I, it was so close that I flinched, but I never took my hand off the trigger. I had this distinct memory of like the saw going just like that as I was just laying, laying down on that dude, just like he was on me. And we had this little back and forth for a moment, but yeah, getting that dirt sprayed up on my face where I could taste the acridity of it was, um, that's always stuck with me. And that's, uh, that's one of those moments where like, that's definitely the closest I came to getting killed and I don't know how I made it out on the other end without getting killed. I just, I can't, I can't figure it out or at least getting shot. You know? Yeah. I mean, you bring up that story. It just reminds me of a firefight that that, that I was in, uh, in the middle mm-hmm. of Baghdad. And I remember as I was moving and running, like I felt something pop up and, you know, bullets are whizzing by. You don't really know how close they are until they're mm-hmm. like super close. Yeah. You know, that they're, they're, they're close. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Cause you can hear them. Like you said, it, there's pops and there's whizzes and then there's like, you know, danger close where, where you got to check your drawers to make yeah. sure everything is still uh, where it's supposed to be. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I remember while I was moving and, and running to go get cover, something bounced up and I remember something hit me right in the neck. And I mm. thought that it was around like it hit me with enough force to sort of turn my body as I was running. And mm-hmm. I'll never forget the feeling. And I'm sitting there like doing this. I'm like, I'm hitting, I'm hitting like, and I'm looking and I'm looking at my hand, you know, my glove to see if there's blood on these little red specks, like of blood on it. You know, it was like, it's either rock or a piece of shrapnel that got like deflected, you know, but it mm-hmm. came up and hit me. But it's just one of those things where, uh, you know, you, you remember that so vividly, um, that it, it's just, it's that moment is sort of crystallized in your mind. Oh yeah. I mean, it, those close calls get, you know, they get ironed into the deepest recesses of your mind. And so like, I, I mean, if I got dementia one day and was lying on my deathbed, I still think I could probably remember that. <laughs> so it's it's there for a while, you know. Um, was there ever a point where all the casualties got to a, so high that you're sitting there having conversations with your your fellow platoon mates or whatever saying, man, I don't think we're going to make it or this is too much. What are we doing here? How, how are those conversations unfolding, if at all? Yeah, I mean, any any um, – pre-programmed illusions that I had about the validity of our presence there was pretty much shattered by the time I deployed. <laughs> so, so I never really had the uh, the existential dread of, is it worth it or why we're here kind of thing. I just, just there doing my job. But yeah, man, I mean, mental attrition was a, the number one problem in our ranks. I mean, we had guys dropping like flies left and right, not just from physical wounds, but from just not being, they couldn't hack it, which is totally understandable, you know, because you know, this isn't changing the world. We were just out there walking around getting shot at. And so, you know, mental attrition was a, was definitely, it was rampant in our ranks and it picked guys off left and right. And there was a constant cycle of guys getting shipped out to do, you know, less dangerous jobs or getting put on mayor cell or getting sent to a different posting. And then we would inherit fresh guys that would have to learn these lessons all over again. So 
by the end of the deployment, I mean, there was only a handful of dudes who actually made it through either, either made it through without getting wounded or killed or made it through without, um, without just having to bend the knee to that, that mental weight, which is understandable. I mean, that's something we've never, we've never created an atmosphere of like a begrudgement or, um, you know, anger against those guys because we all understood we were all there. Everybody reached their breaking point at some point. It's just a matter of can you come back from that breaking point and still keep going? Yeah, I mean, I wonder how much you uh, recognized at the time or were able to recognize at the time the gravity of everything that you were going through and all of your platoon mates were going through and whether it was starting to affect you, whether you could almost see the deterioration mentally of, of guys as it was going on. Yeah, I mean, you definitely could. And, um, you know, one of the things that kind of probably helped a lot of us is we didn't, most of us didn't have a frame of reference. You know, we didn't understand that this wasn't, we thought it was, we were infantrymen. You know, we thought we were, this is your typical infantry deployment. And, you know, we, you hear these deployments where people have had just terrible, terrible times and you think, oh, this is what it is. This is just the job. Um, and we didn't quite realize that the nature of the deployment was pretty, I mean, you know, there's nothing exceptional about it in that, you know, it wasn't like Cornwall in 2007, you know, it was just, we were just out there stomping around, but it was, it was a violent one, you know, it was pretty thick. And this is something that I didn't really understand or realize until years later when I talked to other veterans from other eras and different, different places. And, and in doing the podcast, it's helped us to realize it too. Like it was an exceptionally, uh, exceptionally violent period of time, but none of us had a frame of reference to realize that except for a few folks and they were smart enough to keep their traps shut because they weren't going to be like, yeah, guys, this isn't how normally you know, a deployment goes. So we, um, you know, you could see the, the, in people's eyes, man, you could see guys just start to like give way um, because it was getting hard. In retrospect, do you wish that the, some of those guys who had the experience had spoken up? Yeah. I mean, certainly at the time and you know, this was in 2012. So right. the atmosphere around mental health and stuff PTSD like that was, wasn't a thing back then. Yeah. It was just starting to become like a conversation, you know, it's at least in the military circles. Um, and really for the nation, I mean, it was, it was not really a part of the, of the conversation or if it was, it was kind of this ostracized, you know, media version of the crazy veteran who's like got a bunch of ammo and he's going to go blow something up. And you know, that, that kind of bullshit image that gets pushed by Hollywood and, and the news media and things like that. Um, so yeah, the conversations around that stuff was in its early stages and there was a kind of a, a balancing act of like, I got to take care of myself, but at the same time, you didn't want to let your buddies down. There's no, there's no worse feeling in the world than not being on a patrol where somebody gets into a bad firefight or God forbid somebody gets wounded, you know, that, that feeling of, of not being there, it's, uh, it, it's going to overwhelm any sense of, I guess, self-preservation that that's going to kick in or any sense of like, you know, uh, mental difficulty because you, you're not going to let yourself not do the job. Um, yeah. How does, how does that deployment end? Uh, so that deployment ends, we fought right up to the very end. We had kind of a, a pinnacle moment in October, um, October 3rd and 4th. That was a bad one. Our platoon took a lot of casualties. Thankfully, no KIAs, just just wounded. Uh, but those guys, you know, we got pretty fucked up. It was a bad two-day firefight. Um, that was kind of a turning point. Um, you know, me personally, I had a really rough time with that. With that. Fortunately, the couple of weeks after that, things kind of subsided for a little bit. And I think in October, we got into a gunfight. And so from October till we left in December, it was probably two or three or four gunfights a week. It definitely slowed down a lot, but we fought right up to the very end, man. I mean, my, I think my last firefight was 48 hours before I was back at CAF and getting on a plane to get out of there. How much of a relief do you feel when you get on that plane? Oh, man. <laughs> so I remember, and I remember walking to the back of the C-17 and looking out over the the airfield there and the sun was going down and there's these craggy mountains in the distance and uh, it was beautiful because Afghanistan is a beautiful country. It's austere and brutal, but it's beautiful. And I just remember looking at that and be like, you know, set this in your mind, dude. Cause like you're, you're almost out of here now. You never have that complete feeling of safety till you're completely back. But I was like, I'm, I'm actually done. Like, I think I survived this thing, you know? And even, and you, you go, you might rewind the clock a few days. Like after that last firefight, you know, we hopped in the strikers because the, you know, there were places had strikers. We, we didn't, but uh, we hopped in the back of the strikers. And I remember looking at one of my buddies and like, dude, it's like, if we get back from this without hitting an ID, 
we've made it like we made it through, you know, and then you get back to the cop and you're a little bit more secure and you're like, maybe we'll actually get out of here. And then you get on the Chinook. So it's just like this series of slowly letting go until you're finally back on the ground in the U S and that's, you're like, Oh man, I survived. I mean, when I walked across the parade field and I saw my family and got embraced by my family, the first words out of my mouth was not, I missed you guys. I survived. (laughs) So that was kind of a, a good moment. And it was, um, striking that that was the first thing that came to my mind whenever whenever i finally got back into real life you go through all that and um you know you wonder how you kind of survived and made it out when do you start to come to the realization that your experience there has sort of left an indelible mark on you uh and changed your sort of mental outlook on everything yeah good question man um Honestly, for me, it was years. It was probably till we started making the podcast, which we started recording about a year ago. I think we started recording uh, September last year because um, it was the first time in my life that I didn't have the next step. So when I got out, like I applied for school in in Afghanistan, I got into school. I went back to school. I I loved it. I soaked it in. I, I got to, you know, get to go, got to go to China and study. I got to you know, really enjoy that time. And then as soon as I was done with my undergrad, I went on to do my master's degree and I got to live in Colorado and do that. And just yeah, like, by focusing the way, on just, that. just to cut you off so people know, yeah, you, you have a bachelor's degree in Chinese language and literature and a master's in Chinese literature. <laughs> what is it about China that's fascinating you, bro? Oh man, that's a long story. I'll give you the, the truncated <laughs> version. Basically when I decided to get out of the military, I knew I moved pretty quick. I wanted to do a master's degree. I thought I would go back to work for the government put me for an agency or something like that. And so part of that was I need to study Chinese because that's going to be the language that's going to, uh, that's going to make me sellable. Then I went back to school, started taking Chinese language and decided to pick up the minor. And so I ended up taking a Chinese literature class that completely blew my mind. I mean, I've always been an avid reader and writer and just a, a participant in literature. I've always loved to read and write. And uh, so to have that whole world open up for me was kind of something fresh and new and exciting. Again, it was another another goal for me to pursue. Now, Chinese so, literature, are you reading it in Chinese or Mandarin, or is this translated to English you're reading? So, I mean, when you first start out, you're reading it in translation. But by the time I got to my master's degree, we were reading it all in Chinese. Um, and everything I focused on is at least 1,300 years old or older. So I'm yeah. reading it in classical Chinese, which is just a completely different language than modern Chinese, like grammatically, structurally, everything. So it was. It I was assume you've read a, the Art of War, then. You know, I'm not. <laughs> uh, I know it's, it's it's almost shameful. I have yeah, not. Seriously. So yeah, okay. I've I've read a lot of other stuff from that era, but uh, I've just uh, never went down that wormhole. I ended up getting pulled a bunch of different directions. Strangely, you and I have something in common. I have also been to China. Oh really? Whereabouts? Yeah. Uh, Beijing. I was I was there as a 13 year old kid. Oh, really? I went there to play baseball in a baseball tournament. There were, uh, long story short, back when the first President Bush was president, he had a uh, some sort of program called like hand-to-hand sports. And it was basically sports teams from all over America who went to foreign countries to play sports against them. And they picked yeah. four different American teams, one from the Midwest, one from the Southwest, one from the West, and one from – the Northeast and the guy who was in charge of the Northeast who worked in DC actually was from Long Island where I grew up. So he went to Long Island where he grew up to put the team together. It just so happens it's where I lived and they had a tryout for all the best kids. And I ended up making the team and got to spend two weeks uh, in China, which was a nice, surreal man. experience, especially at 13 <laughs> cool, years old. Watch, yeah. uh, watch the dude eat a scorpion. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've had scorpion at the Beijing night market. It yeah, tastes like yeah. a oversalted kettle uh, kettle cooked no no I, I wouldn't know i i don't trust your judgment on that i, I would not compare <laughs> eating a scorpion to overcooked anything uh, but I'll, I'll take your word for it yeah i mean it was uh it was an experience for a 13 year old kid beijing is a is a different different part of the world so yeah and especially then man i mean if you were there at that time beijing then versus now that's completely 1991 oh wow in that yeah time that frame. China has changed so much since then. I'm almost guilty of your your chance to see it before it really started to explode. It's crazy, man. Uh, yeah. And one other quick story: I'll never forget at the uh, at the opening ceremonies that we had there. One of our guys, I guess he was a translator, whatever's at our table, and they brought out a duck similar to what you see at the end of a Christmas story. You know, head yeah. on it and all. Yeah. Um, they, you know, and, and dude took a chopstick, put it right in the brain, popped it open, started eating the, eating the brain. I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I'm not good. <laughs> 
Beef and broccoli for me, thanks. Uh, <laughs> probably uh, some Beijing cow, yeah. yeah. Beijing rusted dope. It's classic. Anyway, we digress. So uh, you we end have, up finishing yeah. school. I'm sorry we got off on that tangent, but you end up finishing no school. Um, and so, you know, you talk about kind of just to get us back on track here, uh, when you were recognizing that, you know, that your service was sort of catching up with you mentally. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, I'd always had that next goal. I'd had my relationship with my now wife that kind of like, as soon as I got out of the army, we started dating. So I was, I was able to fully invest myself into that next step. So the transition was not difficult for me. Um, I finished my master's in May of 2020. And then I wanted to continue school. I decided to steer out of the PhD skid because I didn't want to go down that funnel. And so I wanted to get a degree in, in creative writing instead. Um, but unfortunately, I, I wasn't able to get into the programs where my wife got in for her PhD. Uh, so we prioritized her PhD over my over my second master's. And so I didn't have a goal. You know, I had to I had to basically enter the real world after seven years of being in school. And uh, so that transition for me was seven, eight years removed. And so it, it co-aligned with the beginning of the podcast. And as we begin to explore those, especially those first few early episodes of the podcast, is when I began to kind of ruminate and reflect on it and really start to kind of dig up the stuff that I had compartmentalized and suppressed and confront those memories and start to understand on a more kind of intuitive philosophical, whatever, you know, personal, soulful level, how those formative experiences and memories really shaped the man I've become um, and continue to become, you know, and, and, and so instead of having them be the, the skeleton in the closet, uh, it was able to, I was able to air them out and just kind of start siphoning through everything, picking out the good that I needed to take care, uh, carry forward with me. Cause there's a lot of positives that come out of those experiences and dealing with the bad. So yeah, prolonged, but was there a moment for you and, you know, an analogy for those civilians listening? I mean, where you actually remember you start talking for the first time about this, it's you walk out to the ledge, right? You're on that 10 meter platform diving board. You walk out to the edge and you, you stare over and you look down and you start to realize how deep the water is. And then you start thinking, maybe I don't need to go. Maybe I don't need to make this leap. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe I can just walk back and you kind of just try to talk yourself out of it. But it's really that first leap that sort of opens the floodgates. Was there that moment for you? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good analogy to put it. Um, I think it's probably a couple of things. I mean, I'd always, I'd always gotten onto the first few rungs of that ladder, right? Uh, I would get kind of a few beers and I'd start talking to like, a, especially a professor of mine who I was really uh, became good friends with. He's my undergrad advisor. Um, we'd be drinking beer in China and I'd end up telling him just war stories and stuff and just like not really war stories and thumping my chest and be like, look how much of a badass I am, but just actually get airing this stuff out, getting it out there. Uh, and nothing traumatic or crazy, just, just the fun stuff, just to kind of test the waters, if you will. Um, but you know, I'd never mentioned anything to, like I said, even my, even my immediate family, I didn't say a word to about any of the actual stories themselves. So, but the moment, the kind of waterfall moment for me was, there was two things at the beginning of the podcast. One, I was, when we first started launching the Kickstarter stuff, I was looking through some pictures and there's a picture of Curtis and he talked about where he got shot in the backpack and by that point in the deployment, he and I were the only two dudes left in our squad that either hadn't gotten blown up, shot, or or um, or quit. And so our our room was pretty empty, you know. And um, when he got shot through that backpack, and he almost got he almost got killed, basically. And I saw those pictures where he's showing up, and you can see the pit, uh, his camelback where it's been shot and it's leaked out. And um, I had a panic attack, you know. And I've never had a panic attack before in my entire life. It just hit me like a brick wall out of nowhere. And I, cause I, I had this thought of like, what if Curtis had been killed because he's one of my best friends, you know? And, uh, and that kind of catapulted in a matter of like two seconds into me, like breathing really heavy. I was like freaking out. I didn't know what the hell was going on. And so that was kind of the moment like, okay, dude, it's time to, it's time to start approaching this stuff in a more structured and kind of a useful environment. And then uh, the second thing that really that, that catapulted me into exploring those memories more was on, a, on the podcast, our third episode, we were still fresh into it and we were still talking to guys in our immediate vicinity. So it was all really uh, a, little bit more, a little bit more tender, a little bit more fresher. So we were talking to our old PL and we talked about that big operation in October. And that was kind of like this cathartic moment for me to just like actually tell what it, what that day did to my mind. And to to get that out on the page, if you will, and then start to reconstruct on the back end was definitely helpful for me. Um, so, 
you know, it's been good to, to confront that stuff. And, you know, it might take years. It might, some guys, they deal with it six months and they get back. Some guys, it takes a decade. Some guys, it might be 20, 30 years before stuff like this starts popping up. But it's always there and it's always going to come up and get you. How much um, of a domino effect has the podcast? And again, it's the Pandway Podcast. Uh, if you guys uh, don't remember, and you can check them out, thepandwaypodcast.com. But how much of the podcast creates a domino effect for not only you, but people who come on it where, you know, you share a memory, they share a memory. And next thing you know, you're starting to uncover things that you didn't really remember, didn't really realize until you start getting into the depths of these conversations. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's happened multiple times. Because um, not only is it a domino effect within our dudes, our guys that we were there with, but their families, their their loved ones, their friends, and even other guys who are different eras, different units, different areas are listening and they're they're queuing in and sending us a message or whatever, just talking about how something, you know, either help them along or whatever. Um, it's definitely, it's helped to fill the gap in our memories. It's amazing how much stuff you forget. And, you know, and combat is a matter of inches. Like, you know, we talked about earlier with the rounds getting close or the unit that's on the other side of the wall, the guy who's five feet away, he's getting his shit kicked in when you are more or less protected behind cover. So to hear the different perspectives of the guys, you know, there's, there's moments that are pivotal for some guys that I completely forgotten, you know, uh, our PL had a, a story about, you know, a dude who was putting in an IED and got hit with a hellfire and his like nephew or something had him back on those little three wheeled buggy things. We stopped him because we, we, you know, we had him on the, on the ISR and he was talking about like the experience of being there watching this guy bleed out. And I was 10 feet away doing, watching the same thing, but it didn't have that same impact on me. And I'd completely forgotten about it until he mentioned that. And I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. But for him, it was formative because he was like right there with this dude. I had enough distance to where it got washed into the background of all the other memories that have occurred from that time. I mean, I could tell you from from doing several hundred of these episodes, um, one of the best feelings that we get from, you know, is when a guest turns around and says, you know, I've never told that story before, or I can't believe I just remember that until now. When you hit that spot with them where it just sort of opens up something that they didn't know that they were feeling or didn't know that they had in them. Um, and that's truly part of the catharsis of, of our podcast and your podcast is to get to those spots with people because it's uncovering all that stuff that we've packed down in for so long mm-hmm. um, that finally comes up to the surface that we really can get to the heart of some of the issues that, that people are dealing with. Yeah, man, absolutely. I mean, that's been a central ethos to our podcast. And, you know, it's something that every guest has has taken away from it. And we've actually, we do pre-interviews where we'll talk for a few hours. And sometimes those pre-interviews will be four or five hours. And we'll just kind of like have a a mini therapy session where we're all just kind of work it out and get those memories out there and stuff and talk and just air it out. And yeah, it's, it's the most rewarding thing, hands down, has been to to shine the light on these guys who need to have their story told and they deserve to have their story much more than Curtis and I do. I mean, we, we, you know, some of the guys that we deploy with have done some phenomenal, did some phenomenal stuff there that, you know, kind of escapes the ability for me to convey. So, you know, but for them to sit down and finally talk about it and get it out there in the, in the open and people to see the, the tenacity that some of these dudes had and the, the, you know, bravery and courage get thrown around a lot, but there's, you know, they're not just platitudes. There's, you know, some validity to, to those, those labels. So. No, yeah. And, and as it pertains to combat, like you say, bravery and courage get thrown a lot, a lot, but much similar to the uh, definition of porn, you know, you know, when you see it, you know, bravery when you see it, you know, courage when you see it, like, honestly, in combat, you know, th- th- there's, yeah. a, there's a certain amount of, I wouldn't do that shit. You know, like there's a certain yeah. amount of, you, you, it happens, uh, you know, and after it's what we think, dude, <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, yeah. so th- there, there is some of that, but I, I, I certainly understand, you know, uh, and I, I asked this to Curtis, um, and I'm curious to get your perspective again, Curtis Grace, who was the other half of the Panjway podcast that we had here on the hazard ground, you know, what do you want this podcast to be? Where do you want it to go? Um, sort of what's the, the grand, you know, apex of this Sure. For me, um, I'll reflect most of what Curtis said, just having that kind of document that you can turn people towards. Um, For me, if it's a way for somebody who doesn't want to talk about something directly with a loved one or a spouse or a wife or a a parent or whatever, send them our direction so that they can 
get a better sense of the experience. Um, you know, as far as the apex thing, I want it to be a part of a larger narrative that's emerging right now. You know, we're fortunate as veterans of this conflict in that we've, we've ended up in a culture that only not only has a proliferation of media for us to express these stories in, but also a culture that's ready to hear it. And they want to hear it. People want to hear these stories, you know, families and loved ones, and even people, complete strangers, they want to hear them. It's not like Vietnam where those guys were treated like shit when they got back. Right. This is a culture that's receptive. It's, it's a culture that's slowly beginning to open itself up to the narrative around mental health, uh, maybe to a fault <laughs> to some degrees. Uh, but you know, it's a culture that is ready to hear it. And so we're fortunate in that, if we if we can archive this podcast and it can be a part of the larger narrative of veterans out of out of Iraq and Afghanistan, then that's that's awesome. And especially if it contributes to something, if it helps one guy, if it helps one family member find solace, or if it helps one guy keep from you know uh, thinking those dark thoughts or or tumbling down the the dark rabbit hole of addiction or something, that that's that's worth it to us. Yeah, and again, I'll tell you the same thing I told Curtis. The, the other benefit to doing this that neither your podcast nor ours had ever thought about when we started doing this is we're chronicling history yeah. forever. I mean, the, the, the Panjway province uh, will, will be forever be told in a first person point of view because of your podcast. There, there are hundreds of stories that we told and hopefully hundreds and thousands more on this podcast that will tell that will forever be told by the individuals who live through it. And, and that's a pretty awesome thing that we ended up doing that we never really set out to do when we started. Yeah. And, you know, my hope is that one day it'll be as valid of a, of a medium to, uh, that in the eyes of the academics or the eyes of say the library of Congress, that they start compiling and cataloging this stuff. So that it's on hand, you know? Yeah. I hope um, the library of Congress calls me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe not anytime soon, but maybe in 30 years, uh, you know, they, it'll they, be they, an interesting uh, conversation uh, to say the least. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's something that Curtis and I would love to see other guys do um, come out. You know, I think the, the way we structured it, not not by any design, it's just kind of accidentally ended up being that way. But by focusing on a specific area, it's allowed for a lot of continuity across a totally different areas and different armies, the Canadian army, right. even. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of continuity to yeah. come across the, the experience thing. of combat there. Uh, a couple of final things here as we uh, record this. Uh, mm -hmm. And the events of the last 72 hours have unfolded uh, about Afghanistan on TV. I'm sure um, it has torn off a Band-Aid that was covering some old wounds. So, one, how are you doing uh, with all of it? And, and two, what are your thoughts? Um, on a intellectual level, I'm doing fine because intellectually we've anticipated this, right, yes. for months. I mean, Panjway fell months ago uh, back in November. And Kandahar, more or less, with the exception of the city, fell months ago. Um, and we've had a lot of contact with people on the ground, like interpreters, Afghan army, uh, people in the in the government. They've actually sent us messages telling us what's actually going on months ago. So we, we saw the routing on the wall intellectually. Um, emotionally, it's disheartening to see because we all know the cost that it's taken not only on not just, I mean, you see the numbers of a trillion dollars and 2000 some odd K it's, it's not just that it's the millions and millions of families that have been affected American and Afghan. You know, we, as I think our society, we get a little bit navel gazely and we forget that there's 300, there's 36 million Afghans that are being affected by this right now too, much more tragically and devastatingly than we will ever be affected by it. And so, you know, it's disheartening to see the, the, the way it's turned out. Um, it's not a surprise. And, you know, we're trying, we've, we've actually been in contact with a couple of people that are in Kabul, uh, literally at the gates of the airport trying to get in. We've been funneling their information to people that we think can help them maybe. And, you know, we're just, we're trying to do what we can. Um, so, but the focus for me is the Afghan people um, on one, on one front, because, you know, I really feel for the girls. The the that's the part that breaks my heart because when I was there, you see these these beautiful girls. You know, they'd be ten, twelve years old, and you know they're doomed to a life of indentured servanthood. And now the little girls who were going to school and had a somewhat of a future in Kabul, it's not going to be there, not to the extent that it was going to be. Um, so that's disheartening for me to see. And then the other aspect of that, and then I'll shut up, <laughs> is the veteran community. You know, you can't take it personally. The, the decisions and the series of, of 
mistakes and or victories that led to this is so far beyond the the capacity for a veteran to do anything about to take it so personally to the point where it becomes a mental degradation for you you can't you can't do that you can't take that on your show on your shoulders it's not your job well it, remember you, you were only going there for a finite period of time to begin with yeah right so I mean, in a year you could only accomplish so much you weren't saving Afghanistan in one calendar year. <laughs> and if you were an E3 with the with the saw, you sure as fuck weren't saving <laughs> Afghanistan in the calendar year. You know, like you were just you probably were destroying more of it as an E3 with the saw than saving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but you know, you just got to remember. You know, the question that keeps popping up is, was it worth it? And when when Panjoy started to fall, we had a conversation about was it worth it, and we we land on the the topic or the idea that yeah, it was worth it because you know for a, for a finite period of time some of Afghanistan had a secure, stable life and they've got a taste of what, you know, semblances of freedom can look like. And, and, um, you know, it was worth it for us and that those experiences can shape you in ways that are incredibly beneficial to your, to your mind and to your outlook and to your life. So that you, you have a, you have a measure by which to compare the, the adversity you face in the real world that it will never surmount. You know, the things we face in the civilian world are, are, you know, they're different. It's different struggle, different difficulties, but they'll never be as difficult as getting through that nine months, that 12 months, that 18 months in Afghanistan. I'm with you. All I can tell you, the unit I trained, when I left, they were trained. I can't speak to how much beyond my time there uh, Mm -hmm. they were able to be efficient or anything else. What my, my successors did after that, what they changed. All I know for the 12 months that I was there. Uh, I impacted the lives of several Iraqis, soldiers, and their families in a positive manner. And that's the only thing I could put in my back pocket. Um, you know, left it all out on the battlefield, literally and figuratively. I left it all out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's enough for me. But I, I will say one other thing. that, And it's that photo of the 650 Afghans on a C-17 just sitting on the ground. Um, Isn't that phenomenal? Yeah, no frequent flyer miles for them, not wearing their seatbelts. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> I, I mean, here's what I'm still grappling with that I can't – wrap my head around where are you sitting right now like city wise i'm in a little town in kentucky okay imagine and and just wrap your head around this imagine that you get up one morning and you have quickly come to the realization that things are so bad you immediately leave your house drive to the nearest airport with zero worldly possessions next to you Mm -hmm. take your entire family and get on any plane going anywhere because living in a foreign country that you've never been to is now a better option than where you are right now. I don't know if Americans can grasp that concept. I mean, imagine Luke just running to the airport right now and getting on a a plane to Bolivia, knowing you may (laughs) never get back to Kentucky or America with Mm -hmm. nothing in your, in, in your back pocket other than your wallet, like, and your whole family goes with you or as many people as you can get. Like I just, that I'm still struggling with reconciling, um, and, and if that doesn't capture the essence of what the Taliban is, then I don't yeah. know what does. Yeah, and and you know, people need to be aware. Don't let them fool us into thinking that oh, they're legitimate God. state actors. Now they're still evil. They'll assholes. say all the right things right right now publicly. Yeah, and they're, they're, the, they're running a serious PR yeah, campaign right now. Yeah, women, three right, months, women's walk. Yeah, yeah, right. Bullshit. Yeah, three months when nobody cares, they're going to be beheading people. I was and tonight, but it wasn't last night. That's for darn sure. So, <laughs> yeah. um, no, I mean, yeah, it's it's a hard. That's definitely an impossible thing for us to grasp because we haven't had to face any semblance of that. And, hundred years. I mean, the great depression was the last time people did that. And even then it wasn't overnight, you know? Right, sure. So, you know, we, we, our, our version of reality is very far removed from that. So it's difficult for, for Americans to wrap their mind around that. Even Americans who have been there and seen that place. hundred uh, percent. Any favorite stories from the podcast that you particularly like more than others that people need to check out? Um, I mean, yeah, there's some good ones out there. Uh, our buddy Tom Evans, we did a two-parter for him. Uh, those are goes, those are good episodes because he is such a just a stellar individual and a phenomenal soldier. Um, and he did a lot of good work while he was there. Um, the interview we did with our with our second PL, the, the third episode, that one's pretty heavy. It's it's a rough one to get through, but it's really it's good because it shows how the the fractures that start to occur as a result of those experiences can can turn into some dark stuff and how to rebound from that and have a successful life on the back end so that you know the, uh, getting your shit together on the back end of breaking is definitely the theme on episode 3 so 
those two are good. And just, you know, just kind of scan through them and check them out and, you know, whatever, whatever sticks out to people or whatever jobs they're interested in or whatever. We've interviewed medics, we've interviewed tankers, we've interviewed Apache, uh, Apache and Kiowa pilots. Um, and we've got more coming down. We're going to be interviewing, we've interviewed one guy that was uh, part of Operation Medusa, which is a big operation to take Panjway 2006. We'll be interviewing another guy, Rusty Bradley, who wrote the book Lines of Kandahar. Uh, which is about that whole operation. We'll be interviewing him here soon. That'll be at the end of season two. So a lot of good stuff coming up. Well, again, the com is where you can go to check out the website and get it anywhere you get podcasts, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, YouTube, uh, Podbean, uh, just a a great series guys that you need to check out. Uh, And we're certainly excited for what you guys have coming up and, uh, we want to support the hell out of you guys. I mean, this is just an incredible work that you're doing and, uh, together we can Voltron of podcasts and, and create something fantastic, <laughs> but uh, we wish you yeah. nothing but continued success with the Panjway podcast. Yeah, we, we really appreciate it. And, and ditto to hazard grounds, man. I'm, I'm going to start uh, raffling through your catalog and listen to some episodes. Yeah, we, we, we have a few there, but uh, probably some guys you may or may not know it along the way. We always like to find that connectivity, but yeah, again, I think I'm going to take, take the punch on the cop Keating episodes. It, always a good place to start there's a yeah there's a lot of uh authenticity there there's a lot of realness there and uh uh no disrespect to jake tapper or or anybody else who's made a movie or a book about this but uh as you well know the e-force perspective doesn't sugarcoat much yeah <laughs> right so you'll that sounds see, good you'll see plenty of honesty there well again we thank you for your time certainly appreciate you uh uh, spending some time with us, continued success with the Pandray podcast. But Luke Coffey, thank you so much for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.